Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be suitable to you, O God, our rock, our wind, and our redeemer. When Rene opened this uh, worship series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount two weeks ago, she wondered if she, and by extension if we, would be part of the crowd gathered there to hear Jesus. Would we have been there? Would we have shown up? At the end of chapter 4, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew wants to make it clear that a primary part of the audience is not a privileged group. Before Jesus begins the sermon, we are told of the crowd, the gathering of people, the sick, the demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, people who, who had been cured throughout all of Galilee. These were the ones who were thronging to Jesus, and when he saw these crowds, he went up on the mountain and preached. On the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 8, when Jesus is done preaching, Again, we are told that a great crowd followed him. And particularly, there was a leper who came to him, and Jesus touched this untouchable. And the unclean leper was made clean, and Jesus sent him away to go show himself to the priest so that he could be restored back into the community. The Sermon on the Mount is bookended with crowds of outcasts. Are we the outcasts? marginalized? How do we relate? Last week, Pastor Don added some more nuance to those possibly among the crowd. They are people frustrated by centuries of occupation from the Roman Empire, some of whom want to violently overthrow the occupiers. And there are some who just want to live lives of righteousness by staying close to the Torah. Let everyone else do whatever they want to do. We'll build a fence around the Torah and have a strict sense of clean and unclean. These are the Pharisees. And there are some who want to collaborate with the Roman Empire to make life as tolerable as possible, perhaps make a little money, gain some power. These were the Sadducees. So in addition to the poor, the outcasts, how many of these types of people were listening to Jesus? These zealots, these Pharisees, the Sadducees? Perhaps part of Jesus' genius was in his ability to address multiple crowds, multiple groups at once with the same teaching, weaving the context and the audience into a new creation. How does it change your listening to Jesus when you, a Pharisee who wants nothing to do with the unclean, are standing right next to a leper and she's fully embraced by Jesus? What does righteousness look like then? How does it change your perspective when Jesus is talking about anxiety over food and drink and clothing and you see those Sadducees wearing their nice long robes and you barely have enough to eat? Can there be multiple meanings to what is said, depending on the perspective that you bring, depending on who else is listening with you? My wife Esther recently read a book by Rachel Held Evans entitled Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. 
Held Evans comes from a rather conservative upbringing and migrated to a more liberal perspective, and this book maps her journey. And she now, like probably many of us here, has problems with the miracles in the Bible. They're hard to believe. She's never personally witnessed a miracle. Yet she notes that she hears current stories of miracles from people who work with those with whom Jesus worked, from people who put themselves in the places where Jesus placed himself with those on the margins. Her friends who do the work of Jesus experience miracles, and she believes them. These miracle stories tend to take place in times of scarcity, when people are hungry or desperate. Coincidentally, my, the closest my wife Esther and I got to these common miracles was when we served with Mennonite Central Committee in Cairo, Egypt. Esther helped out Sister Mary in an orphanage. Sister Mary took care of about 30 girls, and every day for supper, their main staple, they ate two kilos of rice. They were on a shoestring budget, and things were always tight, yet they always got fed. But one day, Sister Mary was making the rice, and she realized that she only had one kilo of rice. There's no time to go get more. So she prayed that there'd be enough, made the food, and began serving. The little ones went first, getting their normal per portion. The older ones, towards the end of the line, would just have to go without. But as Sister Mary served, she forgot all about the shortage, and she just kept on serving, bowl after bowl. And in the end, everyone was served their normal amount of rice. With tears streaming down her eyes the next day as she told Esther about what had happened, Sister Mary rejoiced in this miracle. God provided an extra kilo of rice. A kilo of rice would cost less than a dollar, but that's all they needed. There was enough food. When I look through Sister Mary's eyes at Jesus' words, do not worry what you will eat or drink or what you will wear, for your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. When I look through her eyes at this scripture, it changes things. For the paralytics, for the sick who had been miraculously healed, how would they hear these words of Jesus? What an amazing blessing. They are assured that God loves them, that in God's eyes they are beautiful, more than the King Solomon himself. God will physically, take care, will physically take care of them as they seek righteousness. But for those dressed in fine clothes, eating sumptuous meals, how would they have heard these words? Those who never worry about if there will be enough food, but perhaps worry about what kind of food and drink. And what should they be wearing? Will I fit in? Will I be perceived as acceptable? Is Jesus talking to them also? Might these same words of Jesus make them question the values they think are important? Perhaps God's life is simpler than the markers that they thought they needed to have in order to be acceptable, to be successful. Perhaps righteousness to them is a reorientation. And for the Pharisees, devoted to the Torah, utterly aware of the clean and unclean, whether in regards to food and drink or in regards to someone touching them and defiling their clothing, how would they have heard Jesus' words? 
What does seeking righteousness look like to them? Especially when there are so many among, among them that are unclean. Might it mean moving away from this strict separation between us and them? With these di different groups around, these different perspectives, different life experiences, all gathered to hear Jesus, might righteousness start to look a little different to everyone? Might the righteousness of the against-all-odds trust of the poor in God rub off on the Sadducees? Might the Sadducees' wealth be questioned, challenged, perhaps even directed to the throngs of people around them? Might in this gathering on the mount the Pharisees start to see that God's righteousness is much bigger than their little circle? These questions challenge us to ask ourselves, from what perspective are we looking? And who are we mixing with as we start to see Jesus and Jesus' words from a different perspective? Are we looking from the perspective of the marginalized, people who have experienced abuse, those who have experienced discrimination, injustice? Are we looking primarily from an insider-outsider group mentality? Are we honest about the perspective and the prominence that we give it? about our perspective and the energy and the anxiety that we use to protect it. From my white, male, straight, middle-aged, workaholic, American perspective, it's most in easy for me to identify with the Sadducees, with privilege, comfort, and wealth. I see Jesus' words about not worrying about food and drink, not worrying about what I will wear, as a matter of priorities, and accomplishments. Most of us middle class folks are wooed into valuing the product, the accomplishment, the success, the status. We fill our time worrying about if we will get there, can we do it, will it be successful, will we be successful? Jesus reminds us that the Gentiles worry about all of that stuff. Rather, we should worry about righteousness, and righteousness is a process a process of love, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. This process is the focus, not some worry about an end goal or product. For if the process is good, the product will be good. I was talking to a friend of mine about this concept this last week. She's from a similar social economic background as myself, and she got it completely. And she told me a story of her son's experience in the Boy Scouts from a couple years ago. It was a counterexample since he doesn't necessarily march to the middle class drumbeat. She told of how he enjoyed the Boy Scouts a lot, did all the things, learned what he needed to learn in order to receive the badges, but he never got a single badge. Finally, his mother asked him, why don't you have any badges? You're doing all the work, you know, it'd be so easy just to go get the badge. You have the knowledge, why don't you get your badges? And her son refused. He said, yeah, I did all the work, I had fun, I learned, I know this stuff, why do I need to go get a badge? He appreciated the process, he didn't need a badge of approval. Part of me says, amen, brother, you preach it. The process was worth it, you are righteous, no badge needed. But I must admit that another part of me still really wanted him to go get those badges. 
Don't you need that official sign, that official badge of your status? Don't you need that official sign of your righteousness? This kind of privileged perspective, the luxury of parsing process and product, is where I most like to dwell. I could talk about it for a while and honestly feel like I'm moving towards the truth in the slow dance of salvation. But recently, I was hurled into a different world. When I went to a funeral in an evangelical church, there was this clear delineation between those who were saved and those who needed to be saved. My perspective, my slow dance of salvation, wouldn't make much sense. And I wondered, where would a conversation of Jesus' words about do not worry begin with this community? Where would we start? How can I begin to wrap my head around these people, God's people? Different communities, different interpretations, yet the same words of Jesus. Words spoken 2,000 years ago to a diverse group of people, some of whom banded together with their differences and became a movement. Today, Jesus still speaks to us Sadducees, us Pharisees, us on the margins, us evangelicals, us liberals. Essentially, the church is not the proclamation of truth from a place of privilege, but a living out the truth in the peaceful fusion of multiple perspectives guided by the Spirit. The hope that I have is that these fusion movements that have always happened will continue to happen. I hope that I will rub shoulders with God kin God's kingdom of believers and seekers, with the so-called saved and unsaved, with the orphans and the Boy Scouts, who need not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear, but will strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to us as well, one small kilo of rice at a time. Amen. Amen.